Good morning. The reading this morning is taken from the book of Deuteronomy, um, chapter 6, and starting at verse 1, and in the Black Bibles, it is found on page 151, Deuteronomy 6. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, 11 houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, friends. I bring greetings from Grace Chapel. Um, I've been talking a good bit about you for the past couple of weeks that I was coming here, and I'm in all these different meetings. Uh, One with Pastor Brian, who said, oh, Grace Point, please tell them. I said, hello. I think about them all the time. And then I was with Pastor Richard recently, and he said, he said, please make sure that you remember to say hi. Uh, so Pastor Richard gives his, 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 his hellos, um, and people really, they light up when they hear the name Grace Point Church. Uh, so, so know that we're grateful for you, and we think about you all the time. And I was going to say a word about Ryan later in the message, uh, but thanks for, for the, the warm introduction. I, I was going to say something. Um, I, I've really, really enjoyed getting to know Ryan these past couple of years. Uh, and I, I tend to think that I'm a half-decent judge of character. In ministry, you, you kind of have to be or you won't survive very long. And I, have just, I just think that you guys are blessed to have a lead pastor like Ryan and his wife Jessica and their family. And I know that you're a blessing unto them as well. Uh, but I've been looking forward to this morning for, for quite a long time. Um, so, so thanks for having me. Uh, it, it's, it's really nice. I also just want to thank the people who helped me with the sound check. Uh, to navigate the amount of sarcasm that that I can use in the sermon. Um, It seems that this is a safe place to use sarcasm. Um, So I'm excited about that. I'm I'm just, you know, we're firing in all cylinders here now. So today we're going to be talking about the family, and the message is entitled, For the Good of the Family. Sociologists tell us that the keys to a vibrant society is to have a vibrant family units throughout society. Parents, they provide not only materially and emotionally, but they also need to invest in their children 
These families need to also provide and care for their aging relatives and also accommodate the needs in the respective communities. When you add in a fair government structure and uh, some type of safety for law-abiding citizens provided by, say, a police force, you can have a vibrant society. Now, you can have all those later things, and if you don't have society producing strong families, it's only a matter of time before that society crumples. And there's numerous lessons throughout history uh, where, we, where we see that illustrated. Now, Christians like myself, and probably like yourself too, they would insist to the sociologists that, they, that we need families with a strong moral fiber to have these strong societies. But sociologists, they write in their own way, and pastors, they preach in their own way. So we're just going to focus on the parts that we can agree on today. We need strong families. A couple of words of pretext before we talk about families. Family is a loaded topic. I'm sure if uh, some of you might even be thinking we could have gone for something a little bit simpler, like the Trinity or end times or something like that, rather than talking about family. And honestly, I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, and, and respect how loaded and sensitive the topic of family is. Uh, I, I say this especially uh, for, for those, uh, most of you don't really know my, my, my backstory, um, but if you spend any time with me over a meal and we start talking about kids and so on, uh, I, I, I tend to mention that, that uh, we, we went through all these years of infertility. Uh, we actually went through eight years, the first eight years of our marriage without children. And just recently, my wife Susan and I just crossed the threshold where we've had children now as long as we didn't have children, which is an interesting dynamic uh, for, for people in, in our respective age. Um, it also just is just an interesting observation as you're kind of in that marriage. Uh, I have a family picture. Uh, when, when I talk about infertility and I put up a picture that has four children, nobody believes you. Um, you're like, wow. Um, was, but but that, that is true. Uh, and also just to, just to note, my, my wife Susan, um, she is also at Merrimack College Graduate School pursuing a Master's of Education to get an ESL certification. Um, she is not going to Guatemala or Honduras uh, or, or, or anywhere outside Greater Boston. She's, anyway, so we live in Tewksbury. We got four kids, um, Nathan, Dylan, Janelle, and Brianna. And thanks. So that, that's, that's them. Uh, so family is loaded. As one who doesn't preach every Sunday, I hear more sermons uh, than, than I give. And, and I, I know very well what it feels like to be on, 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 the, in, on that side of the pulpit, if you will. And I've heard all these stories and all these sermons uh, from, from preachers about families. And this is more about me than about the quality of preaching that I was exposed to as a younger person. But I didn't always like it when we talked about families in church. And so I, I, I want to, to, to own a, a bit of that uh, and, and mention a, l- a few reasons why. Uh, e- even now, some of the reasons I'd, I'm, I'm sensitive about hearing sermons on, on family life is the guilt that it produces. Sometimes you come to church, and, you're, and, if, you're, and if you're a somewhat self-aware person, like I think that I am, see, that, see how that works, somewhat self-aware like you think you are? I don't know. All right. Let's just, yeah, we'll, we'll keep moving. Um, 
you're like, wow, I mean, like, I came to church to be encouraged. And now, now the, this guy is making me feel even worse. I should have stayed home and watched sitcoms on, sat, on Sunday morning, and I probably would have felt a little bit better than, than the guilt that I'm experiencing. And then there's also the, uh, the, the, when you come to church with your family, sometimes when something is said and it's like, you know, just, just has a little bit of a, a, a particular angle that it kind of finds you, the person next to you kind of elbows you and gives you that look of like, I hope that you're listening. That was for you, right? And, and, and I'm always sitting next to those people for some reason. I don't think I've ever elbowed anybody in church and just like, I, I hope you're listening. I, I, I'm not like that. But the people that I tend to worship with who come with me in my car, they, 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 no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But let's make an agreement today. On, the sec- on, on, on that last point, let us not look at our spouses, let us not look at our children, let us not look at other people's family members when, when something is said that makes you want to like, I hope that you're listening and, and, and dig that elbow in. In fact, if you want to make sure that they don't change their behavior, do that, okay? Because um, that, 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 is, that is one of those things like, oh, I don't know, what to, I don't know what I, how I can respond to that. So let us let the Lord work. Let us let the Lord convict. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a guest preacher, so, so I want to I make sure I don't lose you too far with my sarcasm. I think I do have a biblical solution for, for such a moment, though, when, when somebody elbows you um, on, on the side. Do you remember that scene in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus predicts his death and, and Peter comes up and says, no, 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 this is never going to happen to you. And, and, and Jesus says, oh, great, I'm glad that you have my back. Actually, he doesn't say that at all. He says, get behind me, Satan. If somebody elbows you today, feel free to say, get behind me, Satan, okay? It, they will never do that again to you. People wonder why Peter denied Jesus three times. I, he called him Satan once. I mean, it's, it hurts. I kid, I kid. Hey, in exchange for you not doing that to each other, um, I'm going to do my best as a giver of this message to not over-idealize family life. I'm, not going, to, I'm going to do my best to not exaggerate family life. I'm not going to exaggerate, hopefully, my, my, my fatherhood and my husbandry um, and, and all these things that, that tend to happen in these types of sermons. Today, we want to have a time, uh, as we talk about family life, about authenticity. We want to have a time where we recognize the dysfunction and the normalcy and the brokenness of family life around us. So let's do that uh, as best as we can. So you're staying here, so like this is kind of like the Apple user agreement. Um, the, the fact that you've stayed uh, means that you've accepted these terms, um, and you just now want the software to download and work and go, so let, let's, let's do that. And, and, and you, can, you can take that off anytime. Um, so we're all in different places of life, and, and we come from so many different families and so many different uh, experiences and, and backgrounds. And I would like to invite you just to contextualize this sermon for your life and for your family. Some of you have children, some of you probably don't. Some of you have adult children, some of you have complicated situations, some of you have, 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 didn't have what you thought you were going to have at this point in your life. I feel a bit of that myself, in, in my own way, even despite the family picture. There's, it's complicated for all of us. So the way that we deal with complication, especially in church moments, is to ask the Holy Spirit to help us contextualize the message to us. So I, I ask you for that too. 
But the big lingering question is, how might God use me to bless my family? Family. They come in all different shapes and all different modes and all different ways. And we have to look at pop culture to, to have a little bit of a, a perspective on, on family life. Uh, here, here's a slide of uh, the popular show, Modern Family. It, it'll, it'll come up in a moment, I'm sure. Yes, so, so any Modern Family fans around here? All right, that, that's, that's half the room. See how, I, see how I do that? I'm like a preacher. Hundreds of you. Um, th- this, was, uh, this is also like a spoof on that Norman Rockwell picture. Um, it's, it's the next slide, uh, The Freedom from Wants in 1943. Uh, you know, one, one of the shows that, that, um, that I grew up watching uh, is, is this one, The Brady Bunch. Not actually true, but, you know, I, I, I like to pretend that I have, like, all this age and wisdom and, and, and so on. Um, no relation to Tom Brady, just, just so a few of you, just, you know, I know that's confusing around here. Um, another show that, that we, we tend to talk about uh, when it comes to uh, the family life is Seinfeld. And I mention that because, of course, none of them are related to each other. But as you watch the show, you would have thought, oh, wow, they are, they are each other's family in this way. The show Friends was called Friends, but they were part of each other's family. And then I think I have just one more, uh, The Avengers. Because um, even superheroes need family, and their family lives are composed of other superheroes, right? And, and I, I, I just think it's just kind of interesting, the different pop culture vantage points that we get these, these family-like expressions from. Now, family life was really important throughout the narrative of Scripture as well. And we turn our attention to these foundational texts like Deuteronomy 6 uh, that, that Connie read to us. And we usually talk about them at, at baby dedications. Um, thanks, great. I just wanted to make sure that the Avengers wasn't behind me as I was talking about Deuteronomy 6. I really, you're, you, you guys are pros back there. But we usually talk about Deuteronomy 6 at baby dedications, at Mother's Day sermons, at Father's Day sermons. And it's a really foundational text. And, it, and if, if you don't mind, I would just like to keep, keep reading it and keep having these, these words uh, linger in, in, our, uh, in, our, in our ears and in also in front of us in our eyes. And it says, these are the commands, the decrees, and the laws that the Lord your God has directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commandments that I give you, so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel, and be careful to obey that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Now we have to remember the context here. The children of Israel have entered this promised land. Their parents have gone from from slaves to escaped wanderers, then to doubters, and then that whole generation passes away, and these children have now entered this promised land, Canaan. Moses, their leader, the giver of these instructions, received these instructions from God, and it is his calling to pass them on to these people. This moment is about nation-building. If you've ever had that, in, if, if, everybody's probably experienced this in their own way, 
But if you remember that excitement of like moving into a new home or a new apartment or a new place that you were going to call home, and you walk around through it and you're like, this is where we're going to hang these pictures. And over here is where we're going to put the Christmas tree, right? There's like this excitement that you have. You guys are a part of a, a vibrant church plant. And for years when you were moving in, you had this, these conversations when, when none of this looked like this, I'm sure, but we're going to put the platform here. We're, we're going to put the place for visitors to, to kind of connect over here. We're going to have kids town here. We're going to have these rooms and these nurseries. I mean, probably one of the most exciting things that you can ever do in a church plant life is to walk into a space that is going to be a nursery, especially when the church doesn't even have babies yet. I mean, that is a moment of faith right there. Here, Deuteronomy 6, they are nation building. They have no idea what this is going to look like. Now, for many of us modern day readers, we, we read this text, and we, if we look at it too fast, we see and we, 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 we hear these words, commands, decrees, and laws, and we go, uh-oh, this is one of the boring parts. For them, in this moment of, again, nation building, this was life transforming. This was community shaping. This was going to be a nation identity forming type of moment. This new land of milk and honey, if you've been growing up or if you've grown up, if you've been raised in church, you hear this milk and honey, milk and honey type of thing that you don't even know what it even means anymore to some degree. But the milk symbolized provision and nourishment. And when you, when you came out of Egypt and you were hungry, milk that symbolizes provision and nourishment, and honey, not just we're going to be provided for, but the honey symbolized a land of prosperity and enjoyment. This is where we would want to live. This is the good neighborhood, the desirable school district t- type of a town. This is where you want to raise your children. And all the children of Israel are saying, we want this home to work. Not only do we not want to go back to Egypt, we don't want, to, we don't want Egypt to come here either. We don't want those, that mentality. We don't want the pagan gods. We don't want those, those, those terrible customs, the, the ways of abuse. We don't want to live like they lived and how they treated us. We also don't want to live as our parents lived. When after God delivered them from Egypt, they doubted and their, their hearts wandered and they died as nomads in the desert. We want something better for ourselves and for our children. So what do we have to do? And so Moses says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is significant because they're coming out of a polytheistic society. And this idea that there can, oh, there's one God and you know him. The Lord is one. And he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you go along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames for your houses and for your gates. If this were a movie, if they were making a really good movie out of this, I know, I, I'm sure they've made movies about this before, but, but I'm, I'm talking about the good ones that we make today, right? The camera would be really low on, on Moses. 
and he'd be standing kind of like in this larger-than-life type of moment. You'd hear the soundtrack starting to build just a little bit. There would be crowds of people in front of him, and it would start feeling pretty big. But moments before this scene, though, Moses is in the back room. He's nervous. He's sweating. He doesn't know what to do about this moment that he's about to partake in. As you may have heard, he's not an eloquent speaker. He's probably not the guy that leaves intelligent voicemails, okay? He's probably the guy that calls, voicemail comes on, hangs up, texts, call me when you can, right? His inner circle is worried alongside of him too. I don't know what he's going to say. He never handles these moments. He hasn't eaten or drank anything. He hasn't slept all night. Some people in the inner circle are probably also wondering, why did God pick him? Moses is looking for the door, and as, right before he's about to walk out the door and, and, and retreat, there's a flashback scene, and it's Moses in the flashback scene remembering what life looked like in Egypt with the abuses, with, with, with the, the, the poverty, with, with all the, 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 the pain and suffering that went with it. And then from there, Moses remembers the calling that God has gave him. He remembers a burning bush scene that says, I am who I am. And you, you go and you tell Pharaoh that you and the children of Israel are leaving Egypt. And he remembers the scenes with Pharaoh where he walked into the most powerful, the, the room of the most powerful man on the planet at the time and said, we're leaving and there's nothing that you're going to do about it. And he remembers the plagues that, that, that came upon Egypt. And as they left, he remembers walking through, seeing an enormous body of water in front of, in front of him, and the water split and rising like towers. And then he remembers as he was walking through the, 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 this, this dry ground somehow with all this water, is this, was this water going to, to stand? Because there's a lot of people coming up behind me. And he remembers looking over his shoulder and seeing mothers carrying their babies. He remembers seeing that that the cattle and the livestock making their way through, and older women carrying their family heirlooms. And he remembers everybody crossing over in the nick of time, and the waters crashing down over the chasing Egyptian army. It's this moment that he, that he remembers the calling that God has placed on his life. He looks at himself in the, in the bathroom mirror, and he goes out, and, 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 and he goes out, and he gives this message. The Lord your God, the Lord your God is one, and you are to love him with everything that you got, with everything that you have, with all the passion and energy that you can muster. These commandments, th this, this is our code. This is going to be our new way of life because we're not going back to the old way. That leads to enslavement and that leads to death. This new way is about liberation, is about freedom, is about the beautiful life that we can live now and in the next life. So when you give these words, when you, when you, when you wake up in the morning, you talk about them to your children at the kitchen table, at the bus stop, at the soccer field, even when you go to the mall, write them on your fridge, on your bedroom walls, even on your toothbrushes if you have to. But whatever you do, you put this front and central. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, 
to give you a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide. Wells that you didn't dig. Vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget that the Lord brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Oh, that is epic. I mean, of all the things that Moses could have said that day, he could have said, the key to a great society is family. Love your spouse, love your kids, even your parents and your in-laws. He could have made this whole thing about freedom. He could have said all, about this, all these things about local economy and about jobs and about community. But no, Moses said it starts for all of us by loving the Lord our God with everything that we have. This is what makes it universal. Whether you're married, whether you're not, whether you find yourself in an unexpected season of life, even when things don't go your way, this is what makes it universal because we all have the opportunity to respond to the love of God. And it all begins there. I imagine in that young nation's history that day that there were many people in non-ideal situations. I mean, the movies, they will show us stills of the beautiful people with their model spouses and their perfect-looking children. You know, the story always tells us, you know, that they don't have any money, but somehow they have budgeted themselves so perfectly that they look great in every scene and are properly attired and have all of the things that, that you'd want to have. But no, Moses is speaking to all the people. And in this patriarchal, ancient Near East context, though there were some who were righteous, there were many who were far from it. There were men who took on more than one wife, who left their first wife for other women. There was polygamy, there was adultery, there was more, and there was worse. There were women who were abandoned. There were men, women who fled for their, for, for their own survival. Women who were waiting for prayers to be answered. There were orphan children and family members who had not spoken in regrettably long years. Moses does not begin this moment by saying, okay guys, it's time to get our act together. I know we've been through some crazy things in the past. No, he doesn't say anything like that. He says, Give, basically, given what is, let us love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, strength, because this is where it begins. And friends, this is where it begins for us too. In this moment, most of us are thinking, or would think, yes, we, we, we know this, we want this, we like this. Some of, some of you may, have, may feel that sense of conviction. Yes, we need to continue to move towards this. It seems so clear, especially on a Sunday morning when we have kind of created a worship space to, for, for this type of moment. I always feel really good in this moment on Sunday morning. I mean, we... we the sermon kind of comes in. And I'm like, yes, I want this too. And then something happens after the benediction and, and, and around lunchtime that like, I, I just kind of like, you know, go back into this, to this default way of thinking. I don't know if it's hunger pains or an awkward church encounter, the reminder of bills or deadlines or responsibilities or emails or, or when, I, when I come into my garage and, and I see all the projects that are facing me. I mean, I actually had this thought once that, like, I think I would be a better Christian if I had a cleaner garage, right? I mean, because, like, all these things just, they face you, and, like, they remind you, that, 
of your lack of discipline and your lack of organization and your lack of this and your lack of that. We call these things the realities of life. And we get to forget about them for a split second in church. And we hear something that feels good, that feels right, that feels noble, and we want to aspire to it. But how can we confront these realities of life and also hold on to the teaching that that God is showing us throughout Scripture? Let's talk a little bit about the realities of life. There's so many to cover, right? I mean, there's that frantic pace of life, there's overscheduling. When it comes to family life and if you're raising kids, you feel that sense of competitiveness with the entire world. There's that, that lingering fear of the future that kind of just hangs over you. This morning, I want to talk about technology. I'm going to leave Ryan to talk about all that other stuff, okay? Good luck. Recently, I attended this thing called the Q Conference, and it was taking place in Nashville. Q Conference, Q stands for questions, and um, it's basically like, like TED Talks for Christians, okay? And one of my favorite talks was by this author named Andy Crouch, and he was discussing content from his new book, The TechWise Family, that I think everybody should read. If, if you own a smartphone, and if you have internet in your house, and if you know children, I think you should read it. And I think that's pretty much everybody, right? So he talks about in, the, in this book, Tech, The TechWise Family, he says, technology has taken over instead of just assisting. Technology has taken over instead of assisting. He says, what is, what is it good for? He says, technology is good for production but not good for creation. I think I have a slide if, 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 if you got it. Technology is good for production, not for creation. Technology is good for expressing capacities, but not for forming them. Technology is good for leisure, but it's not good for rest. You can only get Sabbath if you, if you have this sense of creative work, right? But, you, but, you, but otherwise, it's leisure, And we, interestingly, have more leisure than anyone in history, but we probably have less Sabbath than anyone does too. To confront this, we need to put technology in its proper place. And here's where the family comes in with this idea of technology. It's it's with family life that our creative capacities are found, discovered, nurtured, and then released and sent out into the world. Technology doesn't actually create our creativity. It's actually part of our family dynamics that, that, that help us recognize what we have inside of us, that helps us then mature in it, and then helps us then be, be sent out into the world. If there's one thing, that, and, and Andy says this um, later in the book, if there's one thing technology is not good for, it's being present. If there's one thing technology is not good for, it's being present. And here's where family can, can do something that only family can do. Family can be a place of presence. So we, we'd love, I'd love to encourage you to apply some of this message by incorporating a practice. And that practice is the practice of reclaiming the dinner table. I know, I lost some of you. No, no. I, I, what else do you got in, in, in those, in that, on, on the notes in here? No, just, just hear me out. In the beginning of the message, I, I flashed a, a series of sitcom and pop culture images of families, if, if you remember. And the one thing that they all had in common, um, if you have that slide with the four pictures together, if you, ha- if you see it, everybody's sitting at a table. All these families are sitting at a table. 
And we tend to watch them with the food on our hands or on our, on our, on our laps from sofas, right? And it's like this crazy irony that we, have, that we have forfeited our dinner tables in order that we may watch people having dinner on TV, right? Terrible irony. I would love to encourage you to reclaim the, the goodness of the dinner table and not to be legalistic about it, okay? Not to be legalistic about it. I'm not suggesting that we throw out our TVs, nor am I suggesting that we hang our dining room tables on the wall, okay? Not saying that either. Okay, bad joke. Let's, let's just <laughs> I also understand, I also understand that we, that we have long working days, and we have two working parents, many of us, and that we have practices to shuttle back and forth, and we have crazy traffic. So the idea of sitting down for a family dinner at a reasonable time is, 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 is very tricky for, for many of us, and, including myself. So I suggest this. Meet at the dinner table after dinner. And if you have normal kids, like, like I do, I wouldn't begin with having dinner table uh, having dinner at the dinner table, in order to, to reinstitute this practice, I would bring out ice cream. And I'm not kidding, right? I mean, it's, it's a time where the technology is off and we are gathering to do something that we actually want to do. One, eat ice cream, and two, maybe to talk to each other. Maybe. But let's see how this goes first, right? But you might discover that experimenting with Sunday lunch or Sunday dinner is, is, a, is, a, is a place to start. But, 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 but do whatever you can to recapture this time of being at the dinner table. And again, make it technology-free. For me, it's, it's asking for the highs and lows of elementary school life right now. It's listening to the daily dramas of what happens in lunchrooms and at recess and on the bus. It's holding my, my two-year-old who, who is not able to really you know, communicate the ongoings of her day but just getting a little bit more of those cute phrases that, that she says out into the air. Because you need about five of them to deal with the number of times she wakes up in the middle of the night looking for a bottle of water or something like that, right? So, like, so you, you want to offset these things, right? But when we, when we seek the practice of reclaiming the dinner table, we discover these things. An opportunity to discover gratitude. Because we probably don't get to do that enough an opportunity to celebrate one another. And I would love to encourage you to, to not just invite your kids to, sell, to be the ones, what would you like to celebrate today, also to be the bringers of the celebration. Hey, I know I complain about my job a lot sometimes, but today something really incredible happened, and this is why I decided to do this for a living. Celebrate these wonderful moments so that your family, the people who are around you, whatever that looks like in your life, can, 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 have that, can, can, can share that with you. It's a time to share wisdom and instruction. I know this about gathering with people on Sunday mornings. There is a lot of wisdom in the room. There's a lot of wisdom from all the different paths and lives and experiences, successes and failures that we've all been through. And to share that with the people that we love the most, oh, that is a priceless gift. One of the most important things that we can do at the, t at the table is to allow and to expose the tension and the brokenness that we are experiencing in this life. I'm not necessarily saying to debate, to, to, to debate politics right now at the table, but this is where, this is, when you have a culture 
in your home to discuss the tensions and the brokenness of life. This is probably a borderline healthy place for, to have these types of conversations. To potentially resolve issues and problems and needs. Try not to skip to that one too fast, but to work on that, that table culture first. To express our love for each other. And then the bottom line to all of this is to nurture and grow in the underlying narrative of it all. To love God with everything you got. Because the good of the family begins with loving God with all that you got. I think this is the one thing that has really has, has, has resonated with me a lot lately and, and with my wife Susan. If we don't reclaim the practice of the dinner table and do the, those things at the dinner table, when and where are we going to do that? I mean, the minivan is, is one possibility. Some of the most epic conversations we've ever had have been in a minivan, which is okay, but we're all staring at, at a highway. We're, not, we're barely looking at each other. Kids are looking at the back of your heads. They're, they're confined to car seats, and, 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 and when they get older, obviously, they're not. But, but it, it's not a really great relational moment. The dinner table is so much better with ice cream. Because God is good. Milk and honey, he, today he would have said ice cream. The land of ice cream, right? As we close, as much tension and as much brokenness as we can acknowledge and as much reality uh, that, that we can have here, for many of us Americans, uh, for many of us Americans, especially here in the greater Boston area, and especially for us as Christians, we're, we're, we're sincere and we're also trying to figure out how to navigate and how to live with, with all the competition, all the, uh, all, all, all the, the, the dynamics around us. If you, if you have adult children, you know, you, especially if, you're, if you have children who are millennials, like you, you, you feel this thing of there's only so many jobs out there for our adult children. If you, if you have a kid that may be going to college, you're thinking to yourself, there's only so much scholarship money that, that is out there. There's only so many spots on the team or on the band or on this elite XYZ type of a thing. There's only this, there's only that. And there's a goodness to have a sense of competition. There's a needed element of, of ambition and hustle. There's a needed virtue and achievement and a discipline to succeed. Like, I, I really believe that. And, and, I, and I don't have all my trophies uh, available for, for display, but like, I, I have a few that I can show off, and I'm sure that you do too, and that you want to instill that type of work ethic in the people that you care about. But above those things, because sometimes we get lost in those things, When those things become idols, we run the risk of compromising something far more important than our children's pathway to success. And the thing that we risk ruining is our children's discovery of who God is calling them to be. Of who God is calling them to be. There's that great scene in, in, I mean, it's not a great scene, but there is a scene in Matthew chapter 20. Okay, when, if you remember the mother of James and John of Zebedee, and she comes up to Jesus and she says, Jesus, Jesus, and he stops because she's, she's an older woman, you know, coming to say something about, about her sons, and he gives her time and, and a moment just to speak, and, and, and she says, please, re- I want you to put James on your left and John on your right. And what she thinks is that Jesus is going to be, you know, coming into power, and he's going to be king, and he's going to need a cabinet. And, and we, we, we hear this moment, we're like, oh my goodness, how dare she do that? But on the, on the other side of it, you're, you're like, I get it. She's a concerned mom. 
And if you really know what's going on with, with the disciples is that they are the B team. All the real rabbis, not Jesus, all the real rabbis, they took the better students. They took the better guys. They took the sharper guys, the people who scored higher on the SATs, the people who were bound for, for more success-driven paths. Jesus ended up with the guys like Peter and James and John, who were all wonderful in their own way, but they were the B team, okay? Their mom is coming up saying, please don't forget my kids. They got left behind last time. Don't forget my kids this time. Because I know when, when, when you get into power, all the, the A-listers are going to come and, and, and want to be on, on your team and on your cabinet. And what she says is a very sincere thing, but it's rooted in fear too. Don't let my kids miss out. And in so many words, Jesus is saying, that's actually not the type of game, that's actually not the type of kingdom that, that I'm trying to create right now. In fact, he gives it back to her. Are you sure that your kids can follow me in what I'm actually doing? I mean, it, 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 when, you, when we start getting into the context, there's a lot going on there. If we can guard the calling that God has given us for, 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 our, for our children, uh, sorry, if we can guard the calling that God is giving our children and help our children discover their calling and help nurture it and foster it, that is one of the best things that we can do for children, for, the, for family members, for the, for the people whose lives are intersect, our, our lives intersect with. This is the thing that you can do for your grandchildren. It's the thing you can do for your neighbors to help them discover the calling that God has placed on them. And then it comes full circle. In, instead, of, instead of God blessing us uh, and, and us preserving the blessing and, and competing with those around us, we share the blessing around us. Family then becomes a place of blessing for the, for the world, for the community, for other people, for the strangers, even for our enemies. But it be, and it comes to full circle again when Jesus says, he's asked, what is the most important law of them all? And he says this, quoting Deuteronomy 6, he quotes the Shema, as it's called, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And even though he was only asked for one, he can't help himself but, but sneak in the second one. And the second greatest command is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. If we can anchor our families on this truth, on the love of God, we would be a blessing to the world. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for the teaching of Scripture. We are grateful, Lord, for, for being reminded that the goodness of family begins with loving you with all that we have. So we thank you for the story of, of the children of Israel and of the story of Moses. We thank you for these incredible encounters throughout the Gospels, too. And Father, we thank you for our stories and all the different stories that are in this room. Help us, Lord, to, to faithfully steward what you have entrusted us with. Give us patience, Lord, especially to deal with the tough and agonizing moments. The moments that feel impossible, we pray that you'd give us grace. Remind us that you are a God of miracles. Remember that you, you are a God who is near and that you are a God who has called us to love because you are love. So continue to work in our hearts, Lord, 
as we leave this space. It's in Christ's name we pray these things.